Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast covering brand new films out in theaters. It is called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at my website, Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into, finally, finally getting into the last part of our six-part series, looking at the Star Trek films of the 1980s. This one technically does not appear from the 1980s. It was made in 1991. It is the last film featuring all of the original Star Trek main cast. It's called Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. It is a PG-13 rated film. It does have violence and mild language. The runtime is an hour and 53 minutes, bringing back William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, as well as DeForest Kelly, James Dewan, George Takei, Walter Koenig, and Nichelle Nichols. Some new appearances here from some well-known actors. Christopher Plummer is in this, David Warner, Rosanna DeSoto, Kim Cattrall, and returning actors like Mark Leonard and Grace Lee Whitney. Nicholas Meyer also returns as the director. He co-wrote the screenplay along with Denny Martin Flynn. Now, after the lackluster box office returns for Star Trek V, there were questions that abounded. Whether Paramount was done with the film series for good. Retaining the core cast was so expensive that continuing with the series might be unsustainable for Paramount if they could not guarantee better profits. So they entertained other directions to try to continue the franchise beyond the original actors. Harv Bennett, he was the producer for the prior four entries in the Star Trek cinematic series. He commissioned David Lowry, Star Trek V screenwriter, to draft the Starfleet Academy concept that Bennett had cultivated for some time. This was a Star Trek prequel. He titled it Star Trek The First Adventure, and he would recast the familiar roles with younger and less expensive actors. Bennett revealed that after the fact that he envisioned Ethan Hawke to play James Kirk and John Cusack for Spock. We would see Kirk in his wild and womanizing days, and his main rival, Spock, treated amongst his peers as a misfit outsider. Bones would also make an appearance as Kirk's older roommate, who manages to keep them both grounded. This, he felt, would entertain franchise fans, while it would also serve as a jumping-on point for new viewers. Bennett felt so strongly about his vision, he felt that he would actually direct the film himself. Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry stated, This was a pretty bad idea. He publicly mischaracterized it, maybe intentionally, trying to raise fan outcry. He called it a lowbrow spoof of the Star Trek concept. He felt it was going to be Police Academy in space. Paramount's motion picture head at that time, Ned Tannen, he was not phased by all of this. If the public ended up rejecting it, they still had the option of pulling together the original cast for another go-round. Tannen ended up leaving, though, and Paramount put a new motion picture head in charge, Sid Gannis. He begrudgingly stayed with the concept, although he was much more skeptical than Tannen had been. After much development, they took it to Paramount head Frank Mancuso. Mancuso, though, still wanted to involve William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy in the film somehow. Bennett and Lowry ended up brainstorming a framing device for their story. Admiral Kirk, played by William Shatner, he's going to give an address at Starfleet Academy, and while he's there, he's asked about his time as a cadet. The rest of the movie plays as a series of flashbacks with a different cast, the younger cast, until the final scene, 
where we see Leonard Nimoy as Ambassador Spock greeting Kirk before they end up going on another mission. This framing device gave them the option of proceeding forward with this young cast, but also not ending the franchise for the older cast if things with the young cast did not work out in future entries. Mancuso loved the idea, but there was a catch, though. Martin Davis, then the CEO of Gulf and Western, that was Paramount's parent company, he heard about this controversial idea. He was not officially told, but he caught wind. He demanded that they could not make the next movie without the original cast. And no one at Paramount had the gumption to persuade Davis otherwise. And to make matters worse, when word leaked out, a letter-writing campaign was sparked from Trekkers threatening to boycott any film that did not feature the original cast. So Mancuso wanted one more conventional Star Trek before they would end up going with the Starfleet Academy concept. And Bennett knew that making another conventional Star Trek would mean there was little chance of his own concept of going forward because Mancuso desired a summer of 1991 release date. That was only 11 months to try to draw up and make an entirely new Star Trek that they had not been working on that would be severely rushed and undoubtedly botched. The franchise would probably end up being dead at that point, as would Bennett's reputation. And without that reputation, no one was likely to want to see his prequel idea get put to the forefront. With his contract nearly expiring and without any attractive options, Bennett ended up leaving Paramount, feeling hurt and depressed at the amount of time that he had spent on this project to help Paramount just pull the rug out from under his feet. Now, as Paramount at this time continued to have financial difficulties, they ended up considering putting the Star Trek series into mothballs. You know, maybe it just was not viable. George Takei, the only original cast member who signed on for the Star Trek convention circuit in 1990, ended up telling Trekkers that came to the conventions that Paramount executives were questioning public interest in making another Star Trek film. Takei urged the Trekkers to make their voices heard, and fans soon began lobbying the studio to make the next Star Trek happen. And sensing that Star Trek still had some life in it, Mancuso told Leonard Nimoy that he could take the lead on the next Star Trek feature. Nimoy could write, he could direct, he could executive produce whatever he wanted, so long as they could get a movie into the theaters by the 25th anniversary of Star Trek on September 8th, 1991. Paramount wanted a final film with the original cast, and they were going to use this as a transition of the big screen series to their television series, Star Trek The Next Generation. It was at that time the number one rated syndicated television show, and they were ready to spring forward after this next release. Nimoy's angle was that Star Trek had always been a show that commented on the times. For its 25th anniversary, the film should comment on something there from the very beginning of Star Trek, the thorny issues between the United States and the Soviet Union. Often the Federation symbolized the United States and the Klingon Empire as the Soviet Union, and that was an allegory for the show. The Soviet Union, at least throughout the late 1980s, were undergoing extraordinary changes. Glasnost, perestroika, the Chernobyl crisis— Peace was a goal, but the continued distrust among many factions about the New World Order emerging caused some to actively want to thwart it. Nimoy used this to envision that the Klingon Empire would be crumbling. Under the leadership of a Gorbachev-like leader, they reach out for assistance in order to survive to the Federation. Their leader promises an end to the Klingons' warmongering ways and work toward peace to ensure their own survival. 
This was a solid story idea, and Nimoy wanted Nicholas Meyer to write and direct it. Meyer had a hand in the best of the franchise's films. He directed Star Trek II. He also co-scripted that film, as well as Star Trek IV for Nimoy as the director. Meyer was putting the finishing touches on his project for MGM called Company Business at that time, and Paramount did not want to wait to negotiate with Meyer. They had Nimoy instead talk to a screenwriting team that they had under contract, Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal. Connor and Rosenthal brought in a completely different story idea. They wanted to center the film around Romulans. Nimoy insisted they write his story instead, and he went to great detail to tell them what it was. After a couple of drafts based on Nimoy's idea, Nimoy grew disenchanted on the team and insisted that Paramount pursue Meyer. Frank Mancuso and Martin Davis, they ended up meeting with Nicholas Meyer. They told him they were unhappy leaving the series stalled with Star Trek V. They asked him if he could make Star Trek VI for $30 million. He said he probably could. Then Leonard Nimoy came in to explain the story, a metaphorical Berlin Wall coming down in space. When Meyer heard that, he was instantly sold on scripting. If the script that he wrote was good enough, he would end up directing it as well. So Nimoy and Meyer ended up brainstorming the basics of where they wanted the story to go, and smooth sailing seemed assured. However, a snag arose when Paramount reasserted that Connor and Rosenthal should be the screenwriters. Paramount tried them out, but they found in the end that their work was substandard. So they asked Meyer to help this team out. Meyer explained to them the entire story again that he and Nimoy had come up with. Nimoy, though, was incensed because he felt it was his story idea, and Meyer was assisting them without even keeping him in the loop. And even with help, the Connor and Rosenthal script ended up being a turkey, and that allowed Meyer to take the lead once again on the script. During this period, Meyer's assistant, Denny Martin Flynn, was diagnosed with a form of oral cancer. Flynn also happened to be an excellent writer, so to distract him from the pain, Meyer asked Flynn to help him write the first draft of the screenplay for Star Trek VI. In subsequent revisions, Meyer ended up adding his trademark literary references. There was a heavy emphasis on Shakespearean quotes, including the film's subtitle derived from Hamlet's To Be or Not to Be Soliloquy, the undiscovered country, and it was used in the film to denote the uncertainty of the future and the fear that results from the unknown. Meyer stated that he put in Shakespeare because he really liked the way it sounded coming from the gleefully scenery-chewing Christopher Plummer, who he had cast as one of the main Klingon warriors of the film, General Chang. Once their draft was completed, it was handed to Leonard Nimoy, who had some concerns. Meyer was combative at Nimoy's criticism at the time, and the revision process ended up growing tense between them. They ended up sorting out narrative gaps, although Nimoy was unable to convince Meyer on one particular plot element. Nimoy had wanted Kirk in the film to realize that the Klingons were angry and warmongering for reasons other than it's just their nature. Meyer asserted that the Klingon actions should not be justified. Even though it was tense between Nimoy and Meyer, the story grew layers, and they had a script that they both were proud to call theirs. Or so they thought. After the film had wrapped, there was a lawsuit that was filed by Connor and Rosenthal. Once again, they claimed they should be getting credit for writing the film, believe it or not. After weeks of contentious arbitration... Connor and Rosenthal ended up winning a story by credit with Nimoy, and Meyer and Flynn were credited with the screenplay. 
Gene Roddenberry, though, was not a fan of the script. He detested the depiction of the Klingons as capable of being civilized and refined and seeking peace. While the Federation led the resistance to the peace process, the Federation, he felt, would always look for peaceful solutions. And the Klingons settled disputes by brute force. Roddenberry ended up having qualms about Kirk's one particular line in this film, let them die, upon hearing that the Klingons would perish without Federation assistance. Shatner also felt that it seemed out of character for Kirk to say this. He negotiated with Meyer to express regret after saying it, something that Meyer shot but ended up trimming in the final cut, which actually did anger Shatner quite a bit. Even if Klingons killed his son, Kirk was never a bigot on the show, and it subverted Roddenberry's utopian vision of humanity's future without prejudice if the Federation viewed other races in the galaxy that way. And despite Roddenberry's qualms, Meyer insisted that his way worked best for the aspirational theme of overcoming hatred and enmity to value a peaceful coexistence in the galaxy. Once the script was completed, Paramount grew gun-shy. They were not convinced of the financial viability of the film. They would only budget up to $27.5 million, and they still had not negotiated with the stars. When Meyer refused to accept anything below the $30 million that he was promised early on, Paramount canceled Star Trek VI. However, after a short length of time, some luck came into play. Frank Mancuso left Paramount, and that made way for Stanley Jaffe. Jaffe had a prior working relationship with Meyer, and he accepted his request for an additional $2.5 million. But still, Shatner and Nimoy's asking price threatened to eat about half that amount. But all was made good when Shatner and Nimoy negotiated a smaller salary up front for a larger cut of the net profits down the road. And once things were ready to roll, there was another snag that arrived. The same corporate bean counters that forced Shatner to chop up his story for Star Trek V did the same for Star Trek VI due to estimates of exceeding its allotted budget by about $14 million. They reduced the special effects sequences in half. They redressed sets originally used in Star Trek V and The Next Generation to avoid building anything new. The shooting schedule was reduced to 10 weeks, and that forced Meyer to jettison a 10-minute opening sequence depicting each member of the Enterprise crew in their retirement before being rounded up by Kirk for one more mission. The jettisoning of a sequence where Kirk and Spock and Scotty sneak into a hidden Klingon base to discover a cloaked bird of prey and this plot to destroy the peace process forced Meyer to revise the plot to incorporate a Federation conspirator in the form of Lieutenant Valeris, the Vulcan played by Kim Cattrall on the board the Enterprise. That Valeris role had in that Lieutenant Valeris role had originally intended to be Lieutenant Savik from Star Trek 2 and 3 and a cameo in 4, but her original portrayer from Star Trek 2, Kirstie Alley, commanded a hefty salary in 1990. She was big star at that time. And although Savick was not his creation, Gene Roddenberry objected to Savick's involvement in this conspiracy within Star Trek 6 because she had already achieved a beloved fan favorite status. 
He felt that the fans would be mad at seeing this, and the intention of a romance between Spock and Savick, as they had written in those early drafts, would not work because that too would upset fans to see her turn at the end. Kim Cattrall, she had originally auditioned for Savick back in Star Trek II. She won the role this time, but she turned it down when she got it because she didn't want to be Savick number three and to only offer window dressing to the film. So to keep her on board, Nimoy and Meyer ended up scrapping Savick. They created an all-new character for Cattrall, and they told her she could have a hand in designing her appearance within certain boundaries and her name. Cattrall chose the name Eris, which Meyer ended up changing to Valeris because it had a more Vulcan ring to it. But Star Trek VI draws a lot of parallels to the end of the Cold War between the United States, here represented by the Federation, and the Soviet Union, of course, the Klingons. There's this explosion that occurs on the Klingon moon known as Praxis. That's an allusion to the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. And it makes the Klingon race face possible extinction. As their way of life crumbles, it renders them a superpower no longer akin to the breakup of the USSR. The crew of the Enterprise is called upon to be an escort for Klingon Chancellor Gorkhan, who's a Gorbachev proxy. In fact, his name Gorkhan is kind of a mix of Gorbachev and Abraham Lincoln. He's supposed to address a crucial assembly on Earth. And it's hard for Kirk and company to trust the Klingons after so many years of fighting them. So when a couple of photon torpedoes are shot into the Klingon ship and two men in Federation gear assassinate many on board, all fingers end up pointing to the only logical culprits, the Enterprise crew. Kirk and McCoy are put on trial for the disaster, and that leaves the remaining team with little time to coordinate an effort to clear the names of their compatriots and to secure their release before whatever faction responsible commits more assassinations to undermine the peace process. That's the basic story there. In addition to the original cast returning for Star Trek VI, there would also be some surprises for the fans. Originally, Jack Palance was supposed to play the Klingon leader Gorkhan, but he ended up wanting too much money, so they offered it to David Warner. David Warner was a favorite of Nicholas Meyer. He had played Jack the Ripper for Meyer's breakthrough film from 1979 called Time After Time. Although Warner had just appeared in Star Trek V, he was playing a different character, Meyer felt that Warner would be under so much makeup as a Klingon that few would notice or even care. Christian Slater is here in a cameo role. He's a major Trekkie, and his mother, Mary Jo Slater, was the casting director, so they ended up writing in a cameo part for him to appear. The tie-in to Star Trek The Next Generation comes in the form of Michael Dorn. Dorn plays a lawyer named Colonel Worf, which I think was very confusing to a lot of fans. And that's not to be confused with Lieutenant Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation. Colonel Worf is Lieutenant Worf's grandfather. I was never really clear on that until I did the research for this film, despite seeing this film many times. The role was originally written in the generic, in the script, as Klingon defense attorney, but Meyer decided to retool the role when he met Michael Dorn on the set of Paramount, and he wanted to put him in the film. Meanwhile, Leonard Nimoy ended up further connecting the two Star Trek TV series by appearing as a 130-year-old Spock on Star Trek The Next Generation. It aired weeks before the Star Trek VI release date. It's a two-part episode called Unification, and it directly references the movie's plot as a way to market the movie. Preview screenings for Star Trek VI went exceptionally well, except for Gene Roddenberry. He demanded that they cut out all of the militaristic aspects that Meyer had put into the script to emulate naval command. It was similar to Roddenberry's complaint about him doing this for Star Trek II. 
Their mission, he felt, was of exploration, not of being cold warriors who serve no function in times of peace. Roddenberry at that time had been severely ailing from a couple of strokes prior to the screening, and he would end up passing away two days later from heart failure on October 24th, 1991. Paramount had already celebrated Star Trek's 25th anniversary by naming a new building on the Paramount lot, the Gene Roddenberry Building. They would still have one more dedication to make after his passing. The movie itself, Star Trek VI, they commemorated his legacy with a simple title screen at the beginning for Gene Roddenberry to start the film. Although the script does play a bit campy at times, there's very little that the makers of Star Trek VI do wrong. Meyer really brings in strong character development here, his tie-ins with prior Star Trek films, gripping action, a lot of in-jokes for the fans, well-crafted sets, special effects. They do a really good job with a very little amount of money, and they put all of that into this complex story that brings intelligence to the forefront of the series once again. Meyer draws out a grounded performance from William Shatner. He sheds Kirk's joviality exhibited over the last two films, and now Kirk is again commanding and resourceful with the stature and respect of one of the great warriors of his time. Returning here to do some great visual effects work is Industrial Light and Magic. They did wonders for Star Trek 2 through 4. They were sorely missed with Star Trek 5, but they ended up having the budget to bring them back for Star Trek 6. After shopping around for cassettes from a variety of less expensive composers, Meyer and music editor Ron Roos selected 26-year-old composer Cliff Eidelman to handle scoring duties. They felt that his sound was original and it was not a typical film score. Meyer had originally wanted for Eidelman to adapt a pre-existing symphony called The Planets by Gustav Holtz, but he had difficulty acquiring the rights. And in the meantime, while he was trying to acquire the rights, Eidelman continued to do his original work, and it amazed them in the end, until they finally thought that the planets was no longer needed. They had really good compositions already available from Eidelman. Star Trek VI would end up opening on December 6th, 1991. That was a week ahead of its target date. They wanted to avoid competing with Steven Spielberg's Hook that came out on the 13th. It had very good critical write-ups, and there was a solid box office response. It debuted at number one at the box office with $18 million. That was the best opening weekend of the series up to that point. And all told, it earned $75 million in the United States and another $22 million overseas for a combined total of about $97 million off of that $30 million budget. So it was a hit. Not a monster hit. I mean, it did take in less than Star Trek Four. But it was the hit that they wanted to make. The film does end with a nice touch. The seven main actors' signatures appear on the screen one after the other. The origin of that sequence was one written by Danny Martin Flynn. He wanted to end the film with Kirk inviting the rest of the Enterprise crew to sign off on the last entry of the captain's log. This idea ended up somehow morphing into the actors themselves officially signing off on the movie and the series and Star Trek as a whole. And history would end up proving that this was actually only the final Star Trek appearance for DeForest Kelly and Nichelle Nichols. The other five ended up appearing in Star Trek in the future, including Kirk and Scotty and Chekhov. They actually returned to the big screen in the very next franchise film, Star Trek Generations. That was the first official 
next generation Star Trek movie in 1994. And although this is the last film for the original series, Nicholas Meyer never decides to go for the kind of sentimentality that would mar the previous so-called last movie, Star Trek V. In fact, it does not play like a final film most of the way, only indicating its status when you get to the captain's log and Kirk mentions that it's the final voyage under his command. It never tugs at your heartstrings, and yet the film still does end with the respect for the fans, as well as for these actors. And the sadness that comes with the final adventure comes from within us as viewers, instead of any artificial manipulations on the screen. It is good to see the crew in top form one more time. And at the same time, it's so sad to see them go. An emotional experience for people who have journeyed with this crew for the 25 years of its existence. So for all of that, I'm going to give Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, Three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that this is a good entry in the series. It's a good film. If you're a fan, I definitely think it's worthwhile for you. I don't think this is a good jumping on point if you're not a fan. I think Star Trek Four was definitely much more accessible. Star Trek Six is more of a fitting entry for people who really like these characters and have been with them for a long time. But if you are one of those people, I definitely think this is a good entry. And of course, because of that, I will give it three and a half stars out of four. And that ends it for the Star Trek original series films for the 1980s. And this was a lot of research on my part. I'm very sad to see it go, and yet I'm looking forward to getting into much more of the films of the 1980s. You know, Star Trek was a movie series that was based off of TV shows. I've done a lot of movies recently on this show of films based off of TV shows. I'm going to do something the opposite for the next trilogy of films. I'm going to be looking at three movies that were made for TV that spun off from movies. And actually, it's one movie series in particular. I'm thinking about a movie series that actually competed to a large extent for science fiction fans with Star Trek, the Star Wars series. So I'm going to be covering three movies made for TV based off of Star Wars. And we're going to start with a movie not from the 1980s, from 1978. It was the first spin-off film produced from the Star Wars series. It was called the Star Wars Holiday Special, a film that ended up being so disliked by the person who kind of generated it, George Lucas, that it never really came out on home video. It just kind of aired on TV, so a lot of bootlegs. It's very easy to find if you search for it online, but I'm going to be talking about that on the next episode. Star Wars Holiday Special from 1978 on the next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed this look at the Star Trek films. If you have your own thoughts on the Star Trek series or my reviews of them, you can let me know what you thought of the episodes. You can reach out to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. And until next time, thanks, everyone, for joining me where no one has gone before around the world in 80s movies. Music